just go straight to closing in prayer. That was amazing. Oh, wow. Thank you guys so much for leading us in worship through song, just singing scripture, singing scripture reality, singing biblical realities. That was just amazing. Praise the Lord. If you have your copy of God's word, and I, I trust that you do, take it and turn with me to Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is where we are going to begin our morning this morning. Psalm 73. Sometimes, uh, and I would probably say more, it's actually uh, often, it seems that the good in this world is often looked down upon and evil is rewarded, bad is rewarded. It seems like a very upside down world. You see corrupt politicians who are, are wicked and they gain more power, they gain more control, they gain more money. You see uh, abortion clinics being uh, funded with even more uh, money and funds and allowances. You see God-hating people getting rich, looking comfortable, having power, and living easy. And on the opposite side of the spectrum, you see believers who absolutely love Jesus, struggling to survive, getting demoted or fired from their jobs because of their love for the Lord, struggling to make decisions in a world that is constantly running away from God. What are we to think in these moments when we see evil winning, good losing, evil being promoted as right, good being demoted as wrong? We're seeing the outworking of Romans chapter 1 very clearly that we call good evil and evil good. What are we to think? I, I, I think Asaph in Psalm 73 is probably one of our best friends to turn to. I, I cannot wait to talk to Asaph when I get to heaven to hear what specific circumstances he was facing as he wrote Psalm 73. We're not going to read the whole thing, but you know this psalm. He begins by saying in verse 1, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Surely this is what's true. We know that this is truth. Asaph had probably sat through several sermons on how we should do what is right, and in doing what's right, in obeying we're blessed, and disobedience brings cursing. I mean, just read Psalm chapter 1. That's the way the whole book of Psalms opens, where we have blessing for obedience, you have cursing for disobedience, so he'd probably sat through all of those, and he says, Surely God is good to those who fear him, who walk according to his statutes. But, verse 2, As for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped because I was envious of the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. There's no pain in their deaths. Their body is fat. They don't have any uh, want for food. They're not in trouble as other men. They're not plagued like mankind. Pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. They're just... Filled with evil. And because of that, verse 12, they're evil and they're not doing anything, uh, nothing bad's happening to them. There's no seemingly punishment or cursing for being bad. Verse 12, here's the summation of everything Asaph thinks about wickedness. Therefore, behold, these are the wicked. They're always at ease. They increase in wealth and surely in vain I've kept my heart pure. Look at the evil. Look at those who are winning in this world I'm doing what God tells me to do. I'm losing. Surely there was no reason whatsoever for me to stay pure. I don't know if you've ever felt that. I have felt that before. And I believe that it would have been very easy for the recipients of John's revelation of Jesus Christ to be feeling that way. Rome is destroying us. Christianity is trying to be snuffed out. It's barely even begun. Jesus said it was going to go to the ends of the earth, and it's barely even begun. 
And then as the book of Revelation is unfolding before us, we see that the Antichrist is going to come to power. He's going to rule. He's going to reign in this last seven-year period, Daniel's 70th week. And he's going to have total control and demonically inspired, devil-inspired worship of himself, destroying anyone who won't worship him. It would be very easy to, to think, well, evil has won. God has lost. Good has lost. And there's really no reason to obey. There's no reason to keep our hearts pure. And I believe that's where Revelation 17 comes into play. So turn to Revelation 17. You remember last week we began looking at this woman, Babylon, this mother of harlots, mother of all of the abominations of the earth. We asked last week three questions. Who is this woman? She is yet to come, yes, but she's already existed. She's here now, so she's this mystery. She's been revealed to us now, but she was concealed earlier. She's the epitome of all spiritual fornication and adultery, which is idolatry. She reaches all the way back to Genesis 10 with the Tower of Babel. Genesis 11 is the Tower of Babel. Genesis 10 is the construction of it. And so she represents, we said last week, all of the global false religious system that has existed through the ages and will culminate in that final seven-year period in the end time. So that's what the, this Babylon, this, this harlot represents, a system of global false religion that's existed through all of the ages and will culminate in the seven-year period in the end times. We talked about how she's both economic and ecclesiastical. She's both pious and political. She has to do with religion and also economy. We talked about her purpose. We asked the question, what's her purpose? And last week we looked at her purpose is to align with the beast, to try and work together with the beast to take people away from Jesus. That's why she's being judged so harshly. If you remember, this is really the answer to the question that comes at the heels of chapter 16. Chapter 16, all of those bulls are poured out. It's terrible judgment, unlike the world has ever seen. And it would be tempting for us to ask the question, is this really deserved? Did she really earn this? What has Babylon done to drink of the fierce wrath of God? And this is the answer. Babylon has existed for the sole purpose of taking people away from Jesus. Anyone that they can possibly take out of the grip of Christ, that's what they want to do. And we ended by asking the question, why is John so astonished? In verse 6, in chapter 17, verse 6, he wonders greatly. He's astonished. He's uh, literally astonished with astonishment. I think he's astonished for a number of reasons. And the one that we looked at last week was seeing why people fell for this false religious system. This is the, uh, the illusion of what is real. This is the shadow, but not the substance. This is absolutely false. Why would people be allured by it? And we talked about ourselves. We're allured by prestige, pro prosperity, pleasure, and power. And so we, we spent a while last week looking at all of those realities. And this week, I want us to finish out this chapter. And in doing so, I want us to see three very specific ways that God is working behind the scenes. Three controlling realities for our hearts this morning. I don't know if you've ever read through Revelation and you think, well, that's an interesting book. I don't really understand it and I definitely don't get why it's practical or relevant for us today. My brothers and sisters, this is so practical and relevant for us today. And I think that you'll see that as we go through this text. When evil is winning and good is losing, what are we to think what are we to feel and how are we to respond? Three controlling realities that we will see in this text. Let's read it together beginning in verse 8. 
the angel says to John, the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life and the foundation of the world, will, want, will wonder when they see this beast, that he was and he is not and will come. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits, and they are seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come, and when he comes, he must remain a little while. The beast, which was and is not, is himself also an eighth, and is one of the seven, and he goes to destruction. The ten horns, which you saw, are ten kings, who have not yet received the kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. These have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. These will wage war against the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them, because he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings. And those who are with him are, call, are the called and the chosen and the faithful. And he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are the peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And the ten horns which you saw and the beast, these will hate the harlot and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. Because... God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. The woman whom you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Let's pray together and ask God's blessing on our time this morning. Father, we come before you and we read these verses and we scratch our heads a little bit and we wonder what do they mean and then what does that meaning mean for us? And Father, I pray that you would unfold this text. Show us exactly what you meant for John to understand, for John to receive. Show us exactly what you meant for the early church to get from this text as they were given this scroll. Father, I pray that just as they, with great anticipation, would have received the, the copies of this book. I pray that we would receive this with joy and excitement and anticipate you doing wonderful things in our hearts this morning. So, Father, we ask for understanding, yes, but not just in an intellectual sense. We want to understand your truth intellectually, but we don't want it to remain there. We don't want to just walk away having an academic exercise where we know what this text says, but we don't know what that meaning means for us today. And that's why we pray every Sunday, every Lord's Day, we gather together and we ask you, Holy Spirit, to open our eyes that we would behold wonderful things from your law. Because apart from you, Holy Spirit, doing the work to give us the gift of illumination, we will not see what we need to see. We might be able to understand in a temporal sense, in a, in a physical sense, in, in an intellectual way. We might be able to understand and comprehend what these verses mean, but we will not understand spiritually what we're supposed to do how we're supposed to live. And Father, we don't want to remain unaffected as we come to this text. So God, I, I ask that you would do miraculous things in our hearts and in our minds this morning. You would show us, just even as we study a very, very challenging section of Scripture, that we would see that all of the words of Scripture, of Holy Scripture, absolutely pertain with relevance to our lives today. Every single one. 
that we would not shy away from difficult texts, but we'd press into them. And ultimately that we would see Christ and savor him more than anything in this world. Father, we love you. We ask this all in the name of your precious son, Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who is returning to take us home. We pray it in his name. Amen. If you remember at the beginning of Revelation, Revelation chapter 1, we were told that you are blessed if you read these words. You're blessed if you read them, if you cling to them, if you know them, if you obey them. You're blessed. That's just a word for happy. How are we made happy in the midst of chapter 17? That's the question. We're seeing the reign of terror of the Antichrist. How is this supposed to make us happy? And again, I I just think that this is so relevant for us today. I hear people, whether it's in our church or whether it's in the church universal, that are, are thinking about the days ahead and they're thinking with anxiety and fear and they're wondering what's gonna happen and they're speaking like it's doomsday prophecies yet to come and they're just worried about the future. I think if anybody's gonna be worried about the future, it's the people living here in the middle of chapter 17 in that seven year period in the end times And yet we're told, again, three very specific realities that should give us happiness. This is about our joy. This is about our peace in Christ. And so I pray that as we walk away from here this morning, we'd walk away like that woman in Proverbs 30, right? The the Proverbs 31 woman, the the woman who is so, uh, so confident in God's sovereignty. What does she do? She laughs at the days to come. She's not worried or concerned because she knows God's got this. So, reality number one. As we look at this text, this is verse 8 through 13. Reality number one about the future and about any event coming up down the road in human history. Reality number one. God will always turn upside down situations right side up. God will always turn upside down situations right side up. Verse 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to to destruction. So this beast is the Antichrist, and the Antichrist was and is not and is about to come up. So was, he's there, and then he is not, meaning he, remember, he, he either died, he actually died and was raised from the dead, or he faked a death and was raised from the dead in a, in a faked sort of way. He's, he was, and then he died, and then he was raised from the dead. He's about to come. So he was, he died, and he's about to come. And he's trying to, uh, as the name says, Antichrist, he's trying to be the exact opposite of everything Jesus stands for. And our God needs three tenses, was and is and is to come. The Antichrist tries to use those three tenses, but the middle tense is one of defeat. Even in his very name, as he's trying to say, I'm God, his middle tense is one of defeat. He comes up out of the abyss. Remember, he is, uh, during the halfway point of that, tribulation period, in the middle of the seven years, he is going to be uh, controlled by the devil himself and all that the abyss stands for. Remember, that's really the holding tank, the habitat for demonic spirits. And so he's going to be indwelt and empowered by the devil. He's going to go to destruction. Just notice the irony of this statement. He's going to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. That's how quickly it is in John's mind, given to John. He's coming up and he's going back down. And you're going to see that word destruction again and again. The doom of the Antichrist is prophesied all throughout this chapter. 
He comes up out of the abyss just to go straight to destruction. And anyone who wants to follow him is going to do the exact same thing. Middle of verse 8. Those who dwell on the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will wonder when they see the beast. They're going to wonder when they see him that he was and now he is. And he's not, and he will come again. They're going to wonder. He was. He shows up at the beginning of that seven-year period. He is exalted as some political authority and some political leader. And then he's going to die or he's going to have a, a fake death in the middle. And they're going to wonder at that. They're going to marvel at that. Remember Mark chapter 13. Jesus tells us, I believe it's verse 22. He tells us that in those later days... Uh, false prophets are going to come, false messiahs, antichrists are going to come, and they're going to culminate in the antichrist and the false prophet, and they're going to perform signs and wonders for the purpose of trying to take away the elect, if that were possible. And Jesus is saying it's not possible, but that's who they're gunning for. That's what they're trying to do. That's why John sees, again, we already saw this in chapter 13, that the elect will not bow the knee to the antichrist. And so the opposite is true. If you're not elect, you will be bowing the knee. But please note... Anytime you see the idea of predestination in the Bible, it is always given as a positive. No one is ever predestined for hell. No one is ever purposed for the purpose of going to hell. No one is ever uh, predestined to have to go there. And so even here, it's the antithesis of what was said in chapter 13. You can't be in the book of life and marvel at the beast. That's an impossibility. But no one goes to hell because you're elect to go there. You go there because you want to go there. And so we're, we're told the Antichrist and everyone who wants to follow him, everyone who wants to marvel at him, are going to be destroyed. Verse 9, this is the mind which has wisdom. By the way, that's so helpful. Here's the mind that has wisdom. That's the angel saying, these are, these are difficult things. These are hard things to understand. What he's about to say, this is challenging. So if you read this and you go, I don't get it, the angel goes, no biggie, right? You, it's okay. This is hard. Here's the mind that has wisdom. He's going to unfold this for us. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. So we're going to try and get the interplay here with the woman. Remember, the woman is Babylon. And Babylon is a religious system and an economic system. Economic system we'll see primarily in chapter 18. Chapter 17 is the religious system. She is the, the harlot Babylon who sits on the beast. So she's controlling the beast, but she's, she needs the beast. They're working together. So... The woman sits on the seven mountains or the seven heads. What does this refer to? Some people say it refers to Rome because there are really only two places in the entire world that are known as the city of seven hills. It's either Rome or Rio de Janeiro. So I don't think it's Rio de Janeiro. All of a sudden just popped in here in the Bible. Uh, it could be Rome, and Rome does pop up into play in a lot of places, but I actually don't think that it, this uh, pertains to Rome because of what's going to come up in verse 10. The seven heads are the seven mountains. Sometimes mountains uh, in the Old Testament or hill in the Old Testament can mean an empire or a nation. And I think that's what it's referring to here because of verse 10. And they are seven kings. Literally, it would read this in the middle of verse 9, or start at the beginning. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are the seven mountains on which the woman sits, and they are the seven kings. They literally are, they are the seven kings. The seven mountains are the seven kings. So we know who the seven kings are. The seven kings, and this is why I think mountains refers to the empire of each king. The seven kings goes all the way back to the empires, the seven rulers over these empires that fought against God's people. Go all the way back to Egypt, that's number one. 
Mountain number two is Assyria. Mountain number three is Babylon. Mountain number four is Persia. Mountain number five is Greece. Mountain number six is Rome. And mountain number seven is this Rome 2.0, or more literally, what we're looking at here is all of this corruption from Egypt to Rome, the hatred against Israel, and the corruption in idol worship, all of those things put into this last world empire to try and destroy Israel and steal people away from God. And you can see it there in verse 10. There are seven kings. Five have fallen. Which five, while John is writing, which five don't exist? Egypt doesn't exist. Assyria doesn't exist. Babylon doesn't exist. Persia doesn't exist. Greece doesn't exist. They've all been destroyed. They're not ruling the world at that time. One is, that's Rome. Rome is that sixth power. It is. It's ruling right now in John's day. And the other has not yet come. That's the ruling empire, the kingdom of the Antichrist. So we have this very clear distinction of these seven empires. Their whole goal is to work with Babylon for the purpose of creating political and religious systems that will fight against Israel and against God's people. That's the whole goal. But notice, we already saw in verse 8 that one, this beast, is going to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. And now we see in verse 10, that when the beast comes, when that last king comes, he must remain just a little while. He has to remain, and we're going to see at the end of this chapter, that's the purpose of God, but only for a little while. Only for a little while. It's so short. But those who follow Christ will reign forever. Verse 11, the beast, which was and is not, is himself also an eighth. And is one of the seven. This is where it gets a little bit crazy. He is an eighth, but he's one of the seven. He is the seventh and he is the eighth. Why is this stated this way? So we've got the, the seven kings. We've got the seven rulers over these seven world empires. And that seventh king is the Antichrist. And we've already established that. But now why is he referred to as the eighth? And I believe what's being referred to here is the stark difference in the way the Antichrist rules the world between the first half of that seven-year period and the second half of that seven-year period. We've seen this before. Again, so it's not too surprising. It's just worded a little bit funny. At the beginning of that seven-year period, at the beginning of the tribulation, the Antichrist is going to make a treaty with the whole world, the uh, peace treaty. Everyone's going to bow down and say, you can take over and rule, and he's going to rule in relative peace. There's a lot of stuff going on that's really bad as the seals are being broken, but it's not necessarily... Uh, demonically inspired or things that are uh, being poured out on the world uh, to the severity that we see with the trumpets and the bowls. That happens, the severity comes when the Antichrist breaks that treaty. He's going to break the treaty, right? commits the abomination of desolation halfway through the tribulation. He's going to break the treaty, and then he's going to start going after Israel and going after the Christians. You were allowed for the first three and a half years to kind of have whatever religion you want, and then at that three and a half year mark, something's going to happen where he's going to die and be raised or fake his death and be uh, you know, fake raised from the dead. And then he's going to say, I don't need religion anymore. In fact, there's only one religion, and it's you need to worship me. That's when that, uh, that figure uh, the false prophet's going to erect a statue, and that statue is going to be able to be somehow manipulated to speak on behalf of the Antichrist. 
And you're going to be called to worship that statue. And if you don't, you don't receive the mark of the beast, and therefore you're either going to be killed or you're not, not going to be able to buy or sell, and you're going to have to run away. It's going to be very difficult for you. So the reason why he's called the seventh and the eighth, he's the same person, but he's treating the world so differently that his empire shifts in the beginning, he's with the false prophet. He's with, uh, I should say, the, the Babylon, the harlot. He's using her, and he's with her, and they're riding together, right? He's being uh, controlled by her, but also helping to, to use her for the manipulative control of the world. But once we get halfway through and we get to the end, he's going to kill her and say, I don't need your false religion. Just worship me. There's such a stark contrast. So he belongs to the seventh empire. He's still the same guy. He just runs a very different type of kingdom. So, summary of verses 8 through 11. The final form of the Gentile world power is in alliance with an apostate religion symbolized by this harlot. So the beast is going to be in an alliance with this apostate religion symbolized by this harlot. But notice, at the end of verse 11, He's the eighth, he's one of the seventh, he's also the eighth. He is the seventh, he is the eighth, but he goes to destruction. He's not going to be able to last. He's going to be destroyed. So we already saw in verse 8 he's destroyed. We saw in verse 10 he can only remain for a little while, and we see, we see now in verse 11 he goes to destruction. He's going to be doomed even before he shows up on the scene. He's not here yet in our lifetime. Even before he shows up on the scene, we know he's not going to win. It looks like he's winning. Evil looks like it's winning. But he won't ultimately win. That's why we can sing, a mighty fortress is our God. We can, we can sing, uh, we don't fear the devil, we don't fear the enemy, for lo, his doom is sure. That's what, we could retitle this sermon as that. Lo, his doom is sure. The Antichrist will not win. Verse 12. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received authority as kings with the beast. So these ten horns, remember horns, that comes from uh, Daniel chapter 7 where there are horns of power. So these are kings that are being established. Remember the little horn in Daniel chapter 7 verse 8 is the Antichrist. He's going to be raised up and he's going to bring other kings around him that own kind of geopolitical uh, kingdoms, little lesser empires that all fall under the rule and sway and the ownership of the Antichrist. This is where the idea of a, a one-world government comes from, that you have the Antichrist ruling and, and leading, but you have other uh, princes or kings or however you want to talk about them. You have people that are ruling in other countries, but they're all giving their allegiance to the Antichrist, and he rules all of them. But notice, they have to receive authority. They have to receive authority and, so they don't have it intrinsically on their own, they have to receive it and they only get to last with that authority for about an hour. Now we know that's not a literal hour, 24 hour day split up and then just one hour of that 24 hour day. No, this is a period of time, but it's a small period of time. This is like Jesus saying this is the, the hour of darkness or my hour for glorification hasn't come, but it's just a small period of time. They receive power. It's got to be given to them. They don't intrinsically have it. And God is sovereignly involved in allowing them to have this power and giving them this power for a purpose. It would be very easy for us to say, well, if God's the one giving them the power, then are they responsible for using that power for evil? 
I think we've seen over and over again how the book of Exodus and the literal Exodus comes into play over and over again in the book of Revelation. I think that's a great place to to go to in our minds. Remember Pharaoh, God says, I'm going to harden his heart so that he will not let my people go. I'm going to ask him to let my people go, and I'm going to harden his heart so that he won't let my people go. And it'd be very easy for us to say, "Mm, time out, that doesn't sound okay because you're going to punish him for just doing what you're putting in his heart to do. And I want to remind you of two things, because I think they come into play here. Number one, ten times in the text in Exodus, it says that Pharaoh hardens his heart. And ten times in the text, it says that God hardens his heart. So it's not God forcing Pharaoh to do anything. Just like we said, predestination is always a good thing. It's always for the purpose of getting you to heaven. You're not predestined to not choose Jesus. And so the Pharaoh is only working with his nature to hate God. It's not like Pharaoh's going, I really, really want to obey God, and I want to let your people go, but there's just something in me that says no, and I can't. God's just using the heart that Pharaoh naturally has. That's why I would also say, number two, you don't become hard-hearted without your full cooperation in it. You don't become hard-hearted without your full cooperation in it. So these 10 kings that are going to receive authority from God, uh, literally it's from the Antichrist, but the Antichrist was given that authority and power from God. They're doing what they naturally would do. They are fully cooperating in their own hearts in the evil that they have, and God is simply using that. So these are 10 districts, if you will, 10 political groups that are all under the sway of the Antichrist, 10 administrative regions with 10 kings ruling over them. And by the way, we're told where these 10 regions are in Ezekiel 38 and Daniel 11. We have lists that define for us exactly where these uh, political systems will be, the, the coalition of nations who are going to be with the Antichrist. In Ezekiel 38, verses 5 through 6, we're told that Persia, which is modern day Iran, Ethiopia, which is modern day Sudan and Libya, they're going to be with the Antichrist. We're told of Meshach and Tubal, who are tribal names that are originated from Turkey. So Turkey's going to be with the Antichrist. They're going to give their authority to the beast and ally, form an alliance with him and work with him. We're told other nations like Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan and Afghanistan and Pakistan, Babylon, Syria, Jordan, Egypt... They're all in these lists in Ezekiel 38 and Daniel 11. And so here's where I want to pause and take one little rabbit trail with caution. There's There's a danger in trying to connect too many dots of future prophecy to make a sure, certain, and decided belief. There's a big danger in doing that. I actually don't even think Revelation is... The the ultimate purpose is for us to create some timeline of future events with who's doing what and when they're doing it and why they're doing it and how they're doing it. But I think we can get an idea, perhaps, maybe, get an idea of how this will all unfold in the latter days. There's always been in human history and in church history, I should say, a belief that there is a little a antichrist that's always ruling and reigning, and then there's going to be a big A antichrist. And almost every generation uh, in church history believes that the pope is the antichrist. That's why you hear a lot about Rome and about Rome controlling the, the world. Could be, 
the, the woman here, is the, is the harlot here, is, is she going to ultimately be raised up as the pope? I don't know, could be, might be. She's standing in Rome, yes, but also standing with the seven kings who, they aren't Rome. One is Rome, but it's not fully Rome. It's Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, so maybe it's just you know, an Egyptian prince, who knows? To John, writing from Patmos, this isn't all future, because Babylon for him at that moment is Rome. Remember we talked about 1 Peter chapter 5. Peter says that uh, there is a city uh, called Babylon, and he says it's Rome. So he's equating the two, because it's a city that's uh, firm in its stance against God. But Rome died, so what happened to Babylon? Is Babylon now Babylon? Is it real Babylon? Is it actually Rome? Are we waiting for Rome? Who's the Antichrist? Who's the false prophet? Who's the harlot? Where is this all going to be? These are questions that we've, I've dialogued with many of you before as we've been studying the book of Revelation. And I, I just want to be cautious as we go through these things. But I do think the Babylon that is yet to come, it could actually be literal Babylon. It could actually be literal Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq. There's actually a tourist website that tries to get people to visit Babylon today. I'm not making this up. And it keeps shutting down because people get shot in Babylon today. So it goes up, hey, come see our great city, and people die, and it goes down. And then it goes back up, we've cleaned it up, come sell, or come, come hang out with us. I, I don't know who's going to go to Babylon for their honeymoon. I don't think that's really a good tourist attraction. Don't go there for your honeymoon. But I think that Babylon, a physical, literal Babylon, could absolutely be in place as a uh, a headquarters for the religious system that is yet to come. Babylon is just a two-hour drive south from Baghdad International Airport. Maybe it's stationed there. Maybe. Again, I, I'm not going to be dogmatic about this. So who's the Antichrist then? If the headquarters might potentially be in actual Babylon, who's the Antichrist and what's the religious system that he's going to use Again, we know, this isn't speculative, we know from Daniel 11 and Ezekiel 38, the little Gog and Magog thing, we know that Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Persia, Babylon, Syria, Jordan, Egypt, and Libya, we know that those are the nations, the countries, the regions that are going to be used by the Antichrist, that will each have their own king reigning and ruling, and the Antichrist is going to control all of them. So what's the one thing all of those countries have in common? They're Islamic countries. Now, again, give it a thousand years, and maybe they aren't anymore. So this is why I'm not dogmatic about this. But it's very interesting that all of those countries, for the very first time in human history, all align together with, with their religion. Before Islam ever even existed, John's writing these things down. Ezekiel's writing those things down. Daniel's writing those things down. So... Here is my speculative, with much caution, not dogmatic at all. But I wonder if Islam and Catholicism are brought together somehow to bring peace to the world using a false religious system of Islam that the Antichrist is happy to use. Maybe the Antichrist is Roman Catholic and uses Islamic kings, maybe the Antichrist himself is Islamic. But the question is, how do you have a religious leader coming from Rome, Rome 2.0, but reigning and ruling in Babylon and over Islamic 
countries, over Islamic nations. I don't think it's connecting too many dots. It's not too far of a, of a leap to say that Catholicism and Islam are somehow united. And that's trying to happen today. There's, there's a website. I don't know what the website is called, but if you Googled Chrislam, there is an attempt to get Christianity and Islam together in this religion where they unite in faith called Chrislam. Even in Islamic eschatology, it specifically states that there will be a figure, so eschatology is the study of end times, it specifically states that in the end times, in Islamic eschatology, there will be a figure who will come in the name of Jesus, so he has to be a non-Muslim, he's going to come in the name of Jesus and unite Jesus people and Muslim people. So even in Islam, it, it, in the Islamic faith and the Islamic eschatology, there's somehow a leader that joins these forces together. So maybe it's a Muslim military leader gaining power and then working with Catholic leaders. Maybe it's a Catholic leader working with Muslim leaders. But again, rabbit trail done, side note done. I don't think we can be dogmatic about it, but I do wonder if what we're seeing and it's working out, it could, it could all end. It could all end. We could, you know, Islam could be destroyed and, uh, you know, another religion totally be brought up in those 10 countries. Could happen. But maybe, just maybe, that's what's happening here. What we do know, at the end of verse 12, they have authority for one hour and they have one purpose, and they give their authority and power to the beast. So here's what we do know. The beast will be destroyed. Twice it says he's going to destruction. We are told that it's only for a little while that he has power, and we're told that the ten kings can reign for an hour. So God never said that evil won't experience temporary success. God has just promised us money-back guarantee that evil will never have permanent success. I think that's the point of these verses for us today. Think about the, the original recipients of this letter from John. John's giving this letter to all those churches in Asia Minor. They receive it. They are running for their lives. They're afraid of persecution and death. Many of them are being killed for their faith. And they read that there's coming a day when it's going to happen all over again, more persecution, more suffering. And they must be thinking, is God in control and is evil winning and is good ever going to matter ever again? And I just think as they open, you, you remember they, there weren't chapters and verses in the original text. I think as they open this booklet or little scroll, I think they get to chapter 17 and they read the words, he must remain, but for a little while. And he's going to destruction. And they have authority for just one hour. I think that would have brought our brothers and sisters in the early church, it would have brought them to tears. God has not forgotten us. And God is promising that every single upside-down situation in our lives, it will be turned right-side up. He always does that. Rarely, let's be honest, does he do that on our time frame, right? But he will always turn upside-down situations right-side up. That's Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 9. We'd turn there if we had more time. Just write it down. Galatians chapter 6, you reap what you sow. You reap what you sow. You, you sow uh, bad things, you reap bad things. But we don't have the time frame of that. So evil is being sown, and it will ultimately be sown uh, reaping destruction. 
We just don't have the time frame of when that happens. God never said that they won't experience temporary success, just never permanent success. That's point number one. Point number two and three are much, uh, much faster. Number two, God will always vindicate his people. God will always vindicate his people. This is just verse 14. These will wage war, so the Antichrist and the ten geopolitical systems will come together and wage war against the Lamb. Now, time out. They're waging war against God's people. They're fighting against God's people. They're killing God's people. But if you kill God's people, you're opposing God himself. That's the principle in Deuteronomy 32, where God says to his own people, anybody who tries to kill you, remember this is the phrase, you're the apple of my eye, right? Anybody who tries to kill you, it's like they're poking me in the eye. I don't like that, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get them away from you. And that's, by the way, why the saints get to, be Je- get to be with Jesus in the battle of Armageddon. This is speaking of the battle of Armageddon. There's going to be a war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them. That's probably the easiest statement in all of Scripture. Of course, God is going to destroy the people that are fighting against him because he's the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And those who are with him are called... This is very precise and specific language. Called, chosen, and faithful. Called, chosen, and faithful. You never see those words. There are some people who think that in the battle of Armageddon, Jesus is coming back and only the uh, armies of angels are coming with him. And yes, the armies of angels are going to be there too. I think I could prove that in the text. But you never see the words called, chosen, and faithful ever referring to an angel in the Bible. This is, these are believers Brothers and sisters, this is you and me returning with Jesus as he vindicates us. As he finally says, you remember all those times that you prayed and you wondered, am I in control? Is evil going to lose? Why is good losing? Why is evil prospering? We get to be with Jesus when he goes, it's done once for all. It's over. God never abandons his people. Even when it feels like he is, he's not. That's why he says in Isaiah 43 verses 1 and 2, When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. When you go through the fire, I'll be with you. And if they fight against you, they're fighting against me because you are mine. God will always vindicate his people. So number one, reality number one that we cling to in the middle of evil winning and good losing, God will always turn upside down situations right side up. Number two, God will always vindicate his people. He always will vindicate his people. Finally, point number three, and this concludes the chapter, God always has a purpose in these upside-down situations. God always has a purpose in these upside-down situations. Verses 15 through 18, the angel says to him, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are the peoples and the multitudes and the nations and the tongues. So in the Old Testament, waters could be used to speak of people and nations, specifically pagan people. And so that's what's being used here that the harlot had complete control and influence and uh, domination over all of the people in the world. And she sets up this religious system, but also this economic system that we're going to see in verse 18 and chapter 18. But, verse 16, the ten horns which you saw and the beast, these, I mean, this is plot twist, right? This is shocking. They've been working together with the harlot, and these now will hate the harlot and will make her desolate and naked and eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. So they used her at the beginning of chapter 17, and she used them. But once they finally established what they wanted, specifically what the Antichrist wants, just worship me, no more religion's ever going to be allowed. 
The only religion allowed is worship the Antichrist. And so he kills and destroys the false religious system of the harlot that's been there from the beginning of uh, Genesis chapter 10 with Babel. She will be destroyed. And we know that because, verse 17, God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. There's prophecy at stake here. Let me give you just a couple. Isaiah chapter 13, verses 19 through 20 says, Babylon will be destroyed, never to be inhabited again. Therefore, that verse cannot have come to pass yet. It couldn't have been fulfilled yet because Babylon has been inhabited again and it's going to be inhabited again. And therefore, we're still awaiting for the destruction that we see in Isaiah 13, 19 through 20. By the way, that's the day of the Lord when, when God will return in vengeance to destroy uh, all of Babylon that's against him. Isaiah chapter 21, that's where we saw already fallen. Fallen is Babylon, the prophecy that Babylon will be destroyed, never again to be uh, rebuilt or re-inhabited. Prophecies regarding the destruction of Babylon in Isaiah 13, in Isaiah 21, in Jeremiah 51 are yet unfulfilled. They're awaiting the day of the Lord. And so these kingdoms will turn on the harlot, the false religious system that they used to gain power. They'll turn on her. Antichrist will turn on the false religious system and destroy it. He will tolerate only one religion, and that is the worship of himself. And this, this teaches us a very important lesson about sin. Sin always contains within itself the seeds of its own destruction. Sin always contains within itself the seeds of its own destruction. Beginning of chapter 17, it sure looks like Antichrist and this harlot are working really well together. But the seeds are already there of its own destruction. And by the end of chapter 17, look at the language that's used here. They will hate her. They will make her desolate and naked and eat her flesh and burn her up with fire. She'll be naked. That's what we saw back at the beginning. She was dressed in all this beautiful adornment and they'll strip it all away. This is language that comes exactly from Ezekiel 23, where God destroys his enemy in this exact way by making his enemy desolate naked and eating their flesh and burning them up with, with fire. So when religion is no longer useful to gain authority for the Antichrist, he's going to throw it away. Seems to be happening time-wise. It seems this seems to be taking place right about the middle of the tribulation, right about the middle of that seven-year period. Once the Antichrist is able to proclaim himself dictator over the whole world, he no, no longer needs the help and the power of the harlot and of fa false religion. So there seems to be, in the first three and a half years, a measure of freedom existing for all religion. But the Antichrist breaking his covenant halfway through that seven-year period, uh, destroying, going after Israel, going after Christianity, persecuting believers, it seems like that's where this is taking place, where he destroys the false religious system and then goes after any religion contrary to him. Look at that beautiful poetic justice here. The religion that was seeking to gain political power and helping political power come to power is finally destroyed by the very power that it propped up. I think of Jesus with the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You remember Jesus said to the Pharisees, uh, he had done the miracle. The Pharisees say, you did that miracle by the power of uh, Beelzebul. He cast out demons by the ruler of demons. Jesus says, that's ridiculous. And he says, you know, a kingdom that's divided against itself can't stand. That's exactly what's happening here. The kingdom of sinful depravity is fighting against itself and therefore it won't stand. Something has to give and 
the harlot is destroyed. God is sovereign over this evil. He's put it into their hearts to execute his purpose. Again, he's not using them in any capacity that they weren't already going to be used. They're just doing naturally what they wanted to do, and God says, I'm using that. He gives the kingdom to the beast, and the the words of God are fulfilled. The words of God are fulfilled. Again, money-back guarantee. God is batting a 1,000 on fulfilled prophecy. He says it's going to happen. It happens. So we know this is going to happen as well. And what are the purposes? You might ask, uh, what are the purposes that God is accomplishing in these upside-down situations? There are so many different purposes, but I think one overarching purpose is the reality that Israel is going to be brought back to a place of repentance. That's one of the reasons why the Antichrist, that they're going to worship and proclaim as their Messiah, when he does this, the abomination of desolation, and turns on that covenant and starts attacking the people that he made the covenant of peace with, they're going to realize, wait, he's not our Messiah. Did we miss our Messiah? And they, the, the entirety of ethnic Israel as a whole, not every single Israelite, but as a whole, ethnic Israel will come back to follow Jesus as their Messiah, which was stated all the way back in, in Genesis chapter 12 in God's covenant with Abraham. Before he was even Abraham, he was Abram. So all of this is going to be used. There's so many purposes for why God allows these upside-down situations. But one that we can take home today is God never abandons his covenant people. He never abandons his covenant people, and he promised them something, and they will get it. Verse 18, the woman who you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. So here's a little bit of a turn that takes us into chapter 18, because we find out the woman, yes, she's a religious system, but she's also a political system. And that's all of chapter 18, the economic political system of Babylon will also be destroyed. Remember, she's a godless religious system and also a godless city. That was Genesis chapter 10 and 11. Let's make Babel into a great city so that we can have a great city and a great name. Worship, that's religion, a great name for us, and a great city, an economic power that we don't need God's help in because we are amazing. The book of Revelation, as we get to the end of it, It's really the tale of two cities. It's the tale of Babylon and the tale of the New Jerusalem. Babylon's the prostitute with whom the kings of the earth fornicate. The New Jerusalem is the chaste bride of the Lamb. Babylon is intoxicated on the blood of God's people. The New Jerusalem contains the tree of life for the healing of the nations. Babylon is characterized by corruption and deception. The New Jerusalem is characterized by the nations walking in the light of the glory of God. Babylon's splendor comes from exploiting her empire. The splendor of the New Jerusalem is nothing less than the glory of God. The wine of Babylon makes the nations drunk, but running through the New Jerusalem is the river of the water of life, which gives life to any who would drink of it. So how do we conclude this section? Number one, we have God always turning upside-down situations right-side-up. Number two, we have God always vindicating his people. And number three, we have God always having a purpose in these upside-down situations. So what are we to do? Well, I think we have to go right back to where we began, Psalm chapter 73. Go back there because I think we've been taught now by John as he wrote Revelation 17. We've been taught something that Asaph learned in Psalm 73, verse 12, 
These are the wicked. They're always at ease. They've increased in wealth. So I have kept my heart pure in vain. It's pointless. Let's say it the way that he's saying it. It's pointless to follow God. And then he says this. When I pondered, verse 16, when I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God and I perceived their end. Not their middle, not their temporary success. I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. So he said, I was about to fall, I was about to slip, but you actually put them in slippery places where they do fall. You cast them down to destruction, just like the Antichrist. They're destroyed in a moment. They're utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. I see their end, and that changes everything about the way that I think about them now. That's why he says, my flesh, or verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart might fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The nearness of my God, verse 28, is my good. I want to tell of your good works. Why would we ever give ourselves to something that has such a miserable, destructive end? That's what Asaph would preach this morning. That's what John would preach from John 17. Look at their end. For believers that are actually alive during that period of time, they're going to read chapter 17 and they're going to say, look at their end. It's only a little while. It's only a season. It's one hour. Remain faithful with Jesus. If we are to resist the seduction and the allurement of the prostitute, we must allow Jesus this morning to refocus our attention on the future, on our future and on their future. What is the future? Well, here it is. We're going to face persecution and suffering. God's going to defeat the beast. Jesus already has at the cross. So we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to worry. And we should never yield to any religious system or political system that would try to take us away from God. That's it. That's the point of chapter 17. Hey, persecution's coming. Suffering exists. God defeats the beast through the lamb. The beast has already been defeated. Human history has already been sealed up through the lamb who has been slain. So we don't have to worry. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to yield. When you have the cross, you don't need to go through kind of those points of application. Sometimes we do it. Sometimes we just need to stare at the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God at the cross. And when you have the cross, you don't need six steps of application. With the cross, you have the security and hope of our life for all of eternity and the satisfaction and joy of the temporal life that we have thrown in. With the cross, we have everything we need. So we trust our sovereign Savior to the end. Father, we thank you so much for Revelation chapter 17 that is so uh, packed with difficult things with hard to understand realities, but when we take them to your sovereignty, when we take them to just even the authorial intent of how this was meant to bless the original readers, they knew that suffering lasts for a moment, but glory lasts forever. They knew that though the Antichrist's little a were in charge and though the final Antichrist will be in charge, there is nothing that could ever snatch them out of your hand and so they don't have to fear. And so, Father, I pray that you would make us, make CBC so courageous for the days ahead. We would laugh at the days ahead because we know who is sitting on the throne. 
You're not freaking out about anything. You're not anxious or worried. You're, see, you're seated on a throne. You are sitting there. You are, are ruling and reigning uh, with, with your feet up. You're not worried at all. And so God, help your kids not to be worried either. Because we know you will ultimately, and you always do, turn upside-down situations right-side up again. You always vindicate your people, and you always have a purpose for everything that we go through. So may we not cling to the circumstances around us that are fleeting, that are fading, that are temporal. May we cling to you, who we know will hold us fast in every situation, not because of our ability or our goodness, but because of your great love. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.